Hello and welcome to another Realty Talk show. Well, first up this week, Bushy wants to know what really drives capital growth. There's been a lot of advice given to property investors to seek out suburbs with these uh, sort of favourable amenities, but th there's actually no support in historical data for it. Bushy's guest on this topic is property researcher and data analyst Jeremy Shepherd. Jeremy sets about shooting down some misunderstood and potentially misleading drivers. Then we're going to hear from our old mate Rusty about holding on to high growth properties without impacting how you live right now. Now, if we are not managing that out of the pocket money, then it becomes too hard for the property owner to the extent that it becomes unaffordable. They have no choice but to let it go as a distressed seller. Rasty along a little bit later in the show. Hey, if this is your first time with us, big welcome. You're going to find us on all podcast players and through the Southern Cross Oz Stereo Network. Now, if you like the show, make sure that you hit the subscribe button. Help us to continue to bring you the very best guests each week. We'll be back in just a moment as Bushy kicks off this week's show. Property deductions can save you thousands of dollars each year. To make sure you maximise deductions, you need to work with the most experienced quantity surveyor in the country. BMT Tax Depreciation is the leading specialist in the industry. They've completed over 700,000 tax deduction schedules for residential investment and commercial properties Australia-wide. BMT guarantee to find double your fee in the first full financial year deductions. Call BMT on 1300 728 726 today for an obligation free quote. Realty Talk and your host, Bushy Martin. Now, there's been a lot of talk post-pandemic following the unusual meteoric rise in property values across the board and right across the country about what really drives capital growth. And this is going to be even more important than ever, given that many locations are now likely to flatline for extensive periods of time in the absence of new and continued growth drivers. So what really drives capital growth? Well, as you're about to hear, many of the widely believed and regularly reported growth drivers are actually misunderstood and potentially misleading. So to reveal the little known realities, we're joined by renowned property researcher and data analyst, Jeremy Shepard, the creator of the widely acclaimed DSR demand supply ratio, who's now the co-founder of Suburb Data. So welcome to the Property Hub and let's get invested, Jeremy. Thanks for having me, Bushy. Been really looking forward to talking to you for a, a long time, Jeremy. So uh, I'm um, going to really enjoy our conversation, but to sort of kick things off on this, you know, very topical area at the moment in relation to capital growth driving this, one of the most widely reported beliefs captured uh, by demographer Bernard, Bernard Salt's fried egg analogy revolves around proximity to the CBD. So the obvious question is, should investors be aiming to buy as close as possible to our capital CBDs for better long-term capital growth? Yeah, well, it is a hotly contested uh, topic, but the short answer is, is not really. Uh, there's nothing wrong with it, uh, but it is of no help over the long term. So there, there are a lot of old schools out there who believed in this for, for quite some time. It is hard for them to accept what the data analysis is, is showing. And on top of that, what's made it worse is there's been reports put together in the past, um, some big names there, Reserve Bank of Australia, suggesting that proximity to CBD is actually uh, a driver of above average long-term growth. But 
every report that I've seen in the past on this topic has been flawed in in some way in the analysis, and most of them have actually been flawed in multiple ways. So some uh, analysis has only looked at a single city. Uh, in fact, some reports have only looked at a handful of suburbs in a city rather than all of them. Uh, some reports only classify proximity to CBDs either inner or uh, an inner ring or outer ring, which is a little too um, you know black and white rather than looking for say a, a correlation to growth on a, on a say per kilometer basis. Yep. But one of the the, the most common mistakes uh, is to only use a single time frame. And because of the cyclical nature of growth, uh, there can be eras when suburbs closer to the CBD outperform and then other eras where suburbs further away outperform. So the analysis needs to cover a, a range of different periods to look for uh, consistency across eras. And the analysis that I've done, uh, I used a data set of, of 40 years of Australia-wide growth. I included multiple cities in the analysis. I did the the cross-validation over multiple eras, uh, and I examined multiple rings or multiple distances from the, D, the CBD, uh, all to try and find this per kilometre relationship between uh, distance from the CBD and, and long-term capital growth. And uh, overall, there's, there's no clear pattern in the data uh, to suggest there's any point buying uh, closer to the CBD. And, and I suspect this the, the misunderstanding has come from the fact that suburbs closer to the CBD are usually more expensive than suburbs further from the CBD. So the, so the question is, well, well, Jeremy, how did they get more expensive if not for above average capital growth over that time? But the answer to that question is they've always been more expensive and they've maintained that that same uh, relative difference over, over decades. So investors wondering whether they need to stretch themselves to afford a higher price property that they don't need to. Yeah, I love that because uh, there's certainly been a quarter of the buyer's agency fraternity, uh, for probably for vested interest reasons, who live and operate close to the CBDs where that that sort of old uh, vanguard of getting close to CBD is a good catch cry. But certainly the, the exodus to lifestyle uh, during the pandemic would fly in the face of that. Uh, and a lot of those same buyers agents now are saying, well, we're now returning the old boomerang effect. We're now returning. So it's you've got to get blue chip close to the CBD. Uh, what I'm really relieved to hear is that the data is actually not reinforcing that exercise. And it means that all of us as investors need to, to look uh, more broadly than that and look at other parameters that are actually driving driving price. So uh, it's a, a great uh, eye-opener there. Now, the, the next widely held capital growth driver belief uh, tends to focus on surrounding lifestyle amenities like schools, shops, transport nodes, beaches, et cetera. Now, based on your research, Jeremy, are these actually important for investors in choosing the right suburb? No, not really. Um, surprisingly, they're, they're largely irrelevant. And I've done analysis of the long-term growth rates of uh, beach suburbs in Sydney, for example, versus other suburbs of Sydney. And over about um, a 30-year period, the growth rates are very simple, uh, similar. So you'd think that if, if having a beach made a difference, we'd see that in the data eventually over a period as long as, say, three decades. It should start to show through, but it doesn't. And the same is true for suburbs with good schools. So there are, there are some uh, Melbourne suburbs with a reputation based on the quality of the school they have. But uh, analysis that I've done of historical data showed uh, no discernible difference in long-term growth rates. And I've 
repeated the same kind of research for suburbs with train stations versus those without. Uh, I also looked at the the influence of shopping centres and airports, uh, and it was the same same story. So th th there's been a lot of advice given to property investors to seek out suburbs with these uh, sort of favourable amenities, but th there's actually no support in historical data for it. Interesting. And and why is this then, Jeremy? Because uh, intuitively, uh, that doesn't seem to make sense. Can you sort of shed a bit more light on, on that for us? Yeah, yeah. It doesn't it doesn't really make sense, does it? When you first uh, think about it, but when you when you uh, do a bit of a, a deeper thinking, uh, it actually becomes quite clear. So, uh, probably one of the key things about this research, which I just need to clarify, is when I was looking at the train stations, for example, I made sure that every suburb that had the train stations had that train station for more than thirty years. So this is a feature of the suburb that has been there uh, comfortably for a longer period of time than the period of analysis. Uh, same with shopping centres, same with, with the schools and, and, of course, beaches. I mean, you, you don't tend to find new beaches turning up at a suburb, although with, uh, you know, coastal um, sea, sea tide levels and, and coastal erosion, erosion, you might see some, some new beaches pop up. But generally, uh, that's not something that a suburb acquires, although a shopping centre or a school could. So I made sure that in all this research, um, the feature, the amenity has already been there for a long period of time. Uh, and what happens is the, the, the price of properties has already factored in the benefit of having that uh, amenity there. Uh, probably the easiest illustration um, is, I, I, I rely on this um, analogy, the apples and oranges analogy. So Imagine 100 years ago, you walk into a fruit shop, uh, apples are, are worth one cent and oranges are worth two cents. Yep. Now, if oranges outgrew apples, say they grew at 8% per annum over the next 100 years, whilst apples only grew at 4%, then an apple would go from one cent to 50 cents and an orange would go from two cents to $44. Now, picture yourself walking into a fruit shop today uh, there's been that hundred years of, of of extraordinary growth for oranges and ordinary growth for apples. You're looking to buy an orange, which is still just an orange, for forty four dollars, when you could buy eighty eight apples for the same amount of money. So long before that that ridiculous price difference ever eventuated, people would walk into the fruit shop and say, "Gee, oranges are expensive," and that uh, would reduce the demand for oranges, slowing their capital growth rate. Uh, people would look for cheaper alternatives like apples that would accelerate the growth rate of apples. And so what we find is that over time, there is this great leveling of growth rates. There is a tendency for all property markets to grow at the same rate over time. Um, so th this varies if there's a new train station or a new shopping center, a new school, et cetera, that may influence growth rates. But even then, only for a short period of time, enough for the market to factor in the benefit of that, that new amenity. So it, it is a mistake for investors to focus on the features or amenities that a suburb has uh, when trying to pick a, an outperformer. Yeah, I love that. And, and what I'm hearing from what you're sharing with us is that the longer your time horizon uh, the better opportunity you've got, providing that there's other growth stimulators that are helping that long term. So we're very interesting. Now, the the other generally held growth driver belief relates to high wage growth suburbs, Jeremy. So 
Is there any truth in the old saying that you need to follow the money and, and should investors be seeking out high income areas? Yeah, so this topic is another, there's there's another big misunderstanding amongst investors and even professionals in, in the industry on this topic. Uh, and, and it makes sense why they have been confused. Uh, I mean, you think about surely higher incomes enable buyers to pay higher prices. But an analysis of historical growth rates for high and low income suburbs over the last 30 years has shown no correlation. So I've analysed the ABS household income data from uh, 1991 to 2021, which is the last census, uh, and there's been no clear pattern between higher income suburbs uh, and higher growth rates. It just it, it doesn't happen. Mm, very interesting. Well, what about uh, trends and changes in income, like rising incomes? Does that any have any uh, different influence? Right. Yeah. Good. Good point. Yes, I have actually analysed that too, and and came to the same. It it had the same conclusion, same result in the data. In fact, I also analysed suburb income versus the state average. So that's another thing that I've heard some professionals uh, use to gauge should I buy in this suburb. They compare the suburb's income versus the suburb's state average, and again, there's no correlation. Um, at at a cursory level, again, this this seems counterintuitive. Uh, but when you have a deeper think into what's happening, it, it does become rather obvious. So uh, firstly, you don't need to be a resident of a suburb to buy there. So the incomes of residents are actually irrelevant. It's the incomes of potential buyers. And buyers can come from the, the other side of the city. So there's this potential disconnect immediately. And secondly, if the incomes of residents rise significantly, then they may simply choose to move out to upgrade to a better location, taking their high incomes with them. Uh, and thirdly, there are quite a lot of ducks that need to line up for the increased income to flow into increased property values. So if, for example, the resident is a tenant and they get wage increase, they've got more surplus income, well, they're not going to pour any of that money into the property because they don't own it. So that immediately eliminates about 30% of the residents of a suburb because typically 30% of, uh, of a suburb's residents are, are renters. Yeah. Now, out of the remaining 70%, uh, there's a lot they can choose to spend their surplus cash on. Uh, they could choose to pay down their mortgage. They could buy shares. They could uh, spend their money on uh, food and drink, maybe furniture, cars, boats, caravans, motorcycles, holidays. There's only a small percentage that are actually going to pour their money into the property. Uh, and that, so that could be quite a small percentage. And for the broader market to know of the increased value after this renovation has taken place, the owners need to sell their property. You know, if you renovate your property, you don't sell it. Nobody knows that, that it's now worth more value. Unless, of course, you, you contact the bank uh, and get a, a valuation done to borrow against that equity, but but the broader market doesn't know about that. So as you can see, it's it, it's quite unlikely that an increase in incomes for the residents of a suburb will flow through into into higher prices, and uh, the data confirms that. Very interesting indeed. Well, uh, given these sort of uh, quite myth-busting insights, Jeremy, uh, what are actually the true and key drivers of capital growth based on your research? And can you share a, a couple of good examples with us? Uh, yeah, so there are loads of indicators that are that are now available. Uh, to, this is to identify suburbs with great growth potential. Mm. I mean, all the you've got metrics like auction clearance rates, uh, days on market, uh, discounting, 
Uh, there's some fancier ones like market cycle timing and ripple effect potential, um, online search interest. There, there are loads of these, but these indicators, uh, they, they lose their efficacy over the long term. Uh, they're usually only useful over about a, a three to five year period. And uh, so, um, yeah, since we've been talking about long term, I'll address that. Uh, but I first just need to point out there are, there are a few problems trying to identify long-term outperformance. So firstly, there's, as I mentioned before, there's a tendency for all suburbs to grow at the same rate over the long term. Now, there are exceptions, but uh, the longer the time frame, uh, the harder they are to find because time is this great leveler of, of, of suburb performance. That's the, the apples and oranges analogy. Yeah. Um, the second reason is that Data from 30 years ago is is rather threadbare. We have all these fancy metrics now, but decades ago, there wasn't nearly as much. The data age is still relatively new. So we don't have a lot of historical data that we can look at and say, oh, this definitely works. Uh, and thirdly, because everything changes, even if it did work in the past, over a long period of time, there's a risk it might not work now. So uh, with those caveats out of the way, um, Here's some easy guidelines for investors. Number one, buy a house, not a unit. So houses have outperformed units over the last 30 years. That's uh, definitely, there's definitely historical data support for that, for that strategy. So buy a house, not a unit. Secondly, is you want to buy an old house, not a new one. New properties tend to underperform in terms of capital growth. And that's because of all the, the, the faster rates of depreciation. So it's the land that appreciates. Uh, the building depreciates. So you want to put more of your money into um, the land component of the property rather than the dwelling. So uh, number one is you buy a house, not a unit. Number two, you buy an old house, not a new house. And the third one is to steer clear of vast tracts of vacant land. Uh, it doesn't matter if there's a vacant block next to you, if next to the property you're planning on buying, but you want to avoid those sort of growth corridors where um, it could be additional supply from developers over many years into the future. Supply is the enemy of capital growth. So you want to buy in an established suburb and you want to buy an established house. And that's something that's very easy to research. You don't need any special data for it. And over the long term, um, you should be you should be right. Yeah, but I guess so. combining those two, if you were to build a place in a, an area of scarcity where there's like you, you, you can create a block of land in an, an existing tightly held suburb, you can, I guess, potentially still get the benefits of, of both from a holding cost and a, a potential growth perspective. Uh, yeah, uh, you, you want to be the developer, yeah. Yes. Because then yes. the profit profit margin is you, not yes, not, not the builder or someone else. Yeah, it's spot on. Now, I guess one other thing I, I wouldn't mind just before we we, we close, Jeremy. Uh, uh, you know, you talked about how time's a great lever level over the long term. What is the long term? And and I guess a lot of investors are investing. Uh, generally, they're going into it with a, a sort of a, a let's say an average fifteen year horizon. Is is that fifteen years going to level out uh, all, all locations, or are we talking longer or shorter periods than that? Um, the analysis that I've done shows a remarkable correlation over twenty years. Uh, yeah. Whatever growth there was, whatever outstanding growth there was in the first ten years, uh, it reverses over the next ten years, and vice versa. Yeah. Um, now I haven't done exhaustive analysis on. 22 years or 19 or 17 years or, or anything like that. But generally, over a 20-year period, um, if 
if things didn't go well in the first 10, don't worry. Uh, the next 10, it, it will come good. So, so time uh, covers over um, a, a multitude of ineptitude in investing. Well, what I'm also hearing, though, on the, on the, if we, we turn that around a little bit, if, if, if an investor is going in with a 20-year horizon, then the need to have to, unless they're looking for instant equity uplift to contribute to ongoing property purchases, then uh, that 20-year horizon is going to even out the need to try and buy at the bottom and sell at the top because it, it's going to uh, desensitise that to some degree. Am I right in saying that? Yeah, I mean, yeah, the, the risk, a lot of it, it's a huge investment, isn't it, uh, to buy an investment property? And so a lot of people do panic about this. Am I putting the money in the right place? Now, if you start early enough, then then you, you're reasonably safe. As long as you don't buy in some uh, genuinely uh, cruelly remote area and the, it's a it's a one-trick pony, there's only one industry there and that industry caves, um, well, that'll, that'll crucify uh, the property market as well. Um, However, you can get um, better performance by timing your entry into the market. I'm a big believer in timing the entry into the market because you've got some equity straight away. Well, maybe not immediately, but within like the first year or two. Uh, but even if it doesn't work out, if you just sit tight, uh, things will come good. So, you know, for the last however many decades in this country, there's been very little risk uh, for property investors, it's it's really those those mining towns that have that have proved uh, problematic. Mm, very interesting, and I think given we've seen so much growth post pandemic, uh, without sort of clear growth drivers sitting in behind, the, as I said earlier in the exercise, there'll probably be a lot of areas that tend to flatline uh, moving yeah. forward uh, because we've effectively brought forward a, a lot of growth. Uh, the I, I guess uh, before we close then. One of the things that would be interesting to me, uh, as you mentioned, timing timing the markets is important, particularly if you're looking for short-term equity up, up, uplift uh, to contribute to your portfolio. Are there, are there any growth drivers that, that tend to uh, give you a better indicator of areas that are about to go through that growth spurt uh, that we should be aware of? Uh, yes. Yes and no. I, I've never met a data set that didn't try and lie to me. So if you just focus on one particular metric, for example, auction clearance rates or days on market, you're going to come undone. And um, the the algorithm that I, that I came up with back in 2010, the demand and supply ratio, it's a it's a combination of a lot of those metrics. So you're less likely to to get fooled. So. Uh, Without giving away too much intellectual property, um, I would say things like market cycle timing are quite, quite important. So that's that's an examination of historical growth to look for uh, patterns of growth that that reflect this market is about to enter its next boom. Uh, but even then, I don't rely on that 100%. Um, and and even the, the demand to supply ratio is, is not a perfect algorithm. It's had failures uh, in the past. Uh, some of them have been quite embarrassing for me. Um, so you still need to do a fair amount of research. You still need to, you can't just look up a single number and go, right, I'm buying there. Uh, it just gets you in the right ballpark and gives you a higher chance of success. Yeah. Um, so yeah, market cycle time, I'd say that's that's a good one. Um, yeah, that's that's going to be my uh, my vote. That's that's my top one. Yeah, I, I think the, the danger in property is trying to apply an economic rationalist and almost reductionist approach to a very complex and dynamic 
arena mm-hmm. where there are a, a multitude of changing and varying uh, contributors. So trying to boil it down to a, a, a number of very uh, uh, small and, and potentially linear indicators is very dangerous territory when we're dealing with such a complex animal. And, you know, I, I guess I get personally a bit frustrated because uh, our, our, our approach to everything these days, if we can't quantify it in a number, then uh, we don't believe it. But the danger is we try and simplify it so much down to a couple of indicators that that we're getting a very misleading picture potentially of what what's going to happen and what could happen in the area. So look, I yeah, uh, we've only just scratched the surface here, Jeremy. Yeah, really appreciate it. I'm I'm looking forward to getting you back to uh, t- talk more about this and and other areas in the property space. So I really want to thank you for you know unveiling these really commonly believed capital growth driver misreads and misunderstandings. And I want to suggest that anyone who's looking for true validated growth or cash flow data reaches out to you and your team at suburbdata.com.au. So thanks again for sharing your myth-busting insights here on the Property Hub. Well, thanks very much for having me on your show, Bushy. Thanks, mate. Hi. Just before we get back to the show, I want to take a couple of seconds to tell you about a great live and free workshop that you can enjoy that's going to unpack the art and science of true property investment. And it's got the potential to transform your investment approach and give you a GPS that's going to help you to achieve your version of financial freedom. Now, it's fair to say that there's lots of property information out there these days that can often leave you more confused but very few provide you with the information and the inspiration that's going to give you the comfort and clarity to make better informed property investment decisions on the road to your ideal lifestyle. It's why I strongly suggest that regardless of where you're at on your property investment journey, be it as a beginner or an experienced investor, you need to take the time to do yourself a favour and invest in one of Get Rare Properties' upcoming free live online workshops which is hosted by active investor and highly acclaimed national buyers agent, Rusty Vipav, who's also the author of the must-read book, The Property Wealth Blueprint. So take a second now and jump on getrare.com.au forward slash financial freedom. Repeating that again, that's getrare.com.au forward slash financial freedom as the first step to taking your property investment to the next level. This is Realty Talk. Powered by Realty.com.au. Now, the rapid rise in interest rates over the last year or so has had a significant impact on the increase in resulting holding costs and the cash flow affordability of investment properties generally. So how can you balance the needs of securing high growth properties while making them affordable enough to hold long term without biting into your salary or savings or hamstringing your lifestyle? Well, to reinforce what's important from an investment perspective and to open your eyes to opportunities to manage your cash flow more affordably, particularly during high interest rate periods like we're experiencing, we're joined by our show favourite, Rusty Vibehav, the author of the Property Wealth Blueprint and the founder of leading national buyers agency, Get Rare Properties. So welcome back to Realty Talk, Rusty. Thank you so much. It's an honour to be back with you, Bushy. Always like uh, having a chat to you, mate. Uh, you've, you've got a... Uh, a uh, well, in, in your name says it all. You've got a very rare approach to uh, looking at investment property. And and in this particular exercise, given the challenges that a lot of investors are having around the increasing holding costs of property, it's a, a great topic to jump into. But sort of to kick into that, Rusty, 
Why is capital growth critical? And as an aside, why does cash flow need to be managed carefully? Now, great question there. So first of all, let's understand why people invest. Typically, people invest for the simple reason that they, they can create wealth. And the creation of wealth can only happen when you invest for, say, for example, a, a dollar, and you're expecting it to become a dollar 25 cents or a dollar 50 cents, eventually basically making your dollar working harder for you to get your 25 or 50 cents in the piece. So in property context, if you're talking about a property purchase of 500,000 and we're expecting it in a few years' time going to $750,000 and you're making a capital gain of $250,000 is the prime reason why people tend to invest. And probably I would argue it should be the reason people should be investing, especially just like stock market, residential market is also a growth asset. So when it is a growth asset, we should be investing for the growth. That's why it is important. That's why people invested for that. But having said that, cash flow management is super critical in this particular asset class, especially because of the reason of the leverage that we are taking in this asset class. And what it means is that we are borrowing money from the bank, from the lender, who's charging us interest rates. Now, when we have a loan against a property, yes, there's a capital growth happening, which is probably on the paper that the growth of the property is happening. But in reality, our owner, or the, the property owner, might be actually feeling the pinch of more outgoings than the incomings. Of course, we are collecting rent, and there are lots of expenses around it, like a property management and whatnot. And then there is, um, so, sorry. So we are taking some incomings as the rent that we are collecting and there's outgoings. When there's a differential, when there's more outgoings than the incomings, that means someone is out of the pocket. Now, if we are not really managing that out of the pocket money, then it becomes too hard for the property owner to the extent that it becomes unaffordable. And now from the experience of working as a buyer's agent, you have seen so many people having that due stress, especially with the interest rate hikes that we have seen over the last year or 15 months or so, it has just become so unaffordable for them that though they wanted to hold the property for long term, they have no choice but to let it go as a distressed seller. So yes, capital growth is super critical, but more important, we can't really miss out on the importance of the cash flow management because that's a daily routine uh, cash flow management that one has to go through. Absolutely agree, Rusty. And I, I guess... Uh... You know, you and I, you're very active with uh, investors every day of the week. Uh, I, I think a big reason why over 50% of first-time investors sell a property within the first five years is they haven't paid enough attention to the actual ongoing week-to-week uh, -week cash flowing of the property. And, and suddenly it's costing them a lot more than I expected and they knee-jerk and, and make a decision that has long-term uh, unfortunate consequences for them. So uh, I think that cash flow affordability piece is something that uh, uh, a lot of investors need to pay a, a lot more attention to to understand what the true actual holding costs of a property is when all of the purchasing and, and ongoing holding costs are, are factored into the mix. But uh, sort of coming back to this then, uh, you know, given that interest rates have increased, how can we better manage the shortfall to maintain that ongoing cash flow affordability, Rusty? Yeah, sometimes I would say that sometimes a bit, bit too late because the property has already been purchased. Because one of the arguments I would say, just like you mentioned here, that 50% of the first-time buyers, first-time first -time investors actually sell the property back because they have actually bought the wrong property or the wrong type of the property or maybe paid too much. So 
for someone who's actually starting, uh, I'll probably have a certain suggestion out there that to be mindful of the real true holding cost. And uh, there are certain ways to be mindful of and also some deliberate action of property investor can take. One is that, of course, like buying the quality property, like making sure that, um, so let's talk about the components of holding cost. That would really probably help us understand more. So the biggest component of that is that of the interest rate that we are paying or the the, the loan that we are repaying on a month, monthly basis. Yep. Uh, second part of it is the any expenses around the property uh, in terms of maintenance that we are paying. And the third component would be the incomings, making sure that the incoming as a rent that we're collecting is consistent uh, more so than otherwise. So of the three components, if you really talk one, one at a time, so for example, interest or the repayment that we're making to the bank, the first approach would be much more easier to simply go and start thinking about paying interest-only loans. Yeah. Now, of course, this can't really stay there for long because there's a regulation there, like banks can't really allow you to hold interest-only loans forever, unlike last time. Uh, so whatever we can afford to, uh, going for our interest-only period, is probably one of the ways to think about it. Of course, it also comes down to the renegotiating um, the loan rates, talking to your mortgage broker, talking to your bank, because that's an easy win. Just picking a phone to your mortgage broker, asking for a better rate uh, or debt consolidation, things like that can really happen. Second part of it is uh, getting the, like lowering your maintenance cost around it. And that's really comes down to the quality of the property purchase, also the quality of the property manager. Yeah. So always think of property investing as a business of yours, whereby understanding that the property manager, your mortgage broker, your tenant, they're all stakeholders in your business. Yeah. Now, when you have picked the right business partners like property manager, uh, they should be not just going there to collect rent, but rather managing the property truly on your behalf. And what it means is always reporting back, even if the slightest issue or any arrears that the tenant is making, reporting it back and be more I guess, proactive in, in looking after them rather than letting, so for example, a moisture in the bathroom, letting it slip through and then it becomes a big expense as an example. So if you can lower down the holding cost, it's probably one of the best ways. And that really comes down to the property manager because that's their duty to do it. Yeah. The third part of it is basically making sure the rent is coming consistently. It's again, the, prop, the duty of the property manager and, and also sometimes property manager can only do enough Sometimes the consistency of the rent that matters rather than becoming greedy and going for extra $10, $20, rather than going for the quality tenant who's taking care of the property, making sure that they are treating it as a, their home rather than just a property they're living in. And then that due care also means lower vacancy rate in that property. Yeah. Now, all of this is possible when we have actually done the right research, we have bought the right property, and there's always... I guess the vacancy rate that there's always a good tenant ready to replace your existing tenant. So a, a lot goes around buying the right side of property. Yep. So, so that's one aspect of it, basically. Second part of it is in the days like this, when interest rates has gone up, there's not much people can do. Second part of it would be to really build up the offset, like build up more of a cash buffer. Yeah. Because what really you are saying, so for example, in the like, so for example, 24 months ago. The, the outgoings were only $200 per month, which was very easily affordable, but now they have really gone up to say $1,400, $1,500 per month. Yep. And if it's still okay for 
a property owner having only one property. Imagine that person having three or four properties that's really facing the, the heat of this of unaffordability issue. So second part of it would be really building up a lot more safety net, yeah. making sure that there's always some money in the kitty whenever there's some issue with the, with the, with the outgoings going too far ahead. And the third part I would also say is that let, let's make sure that we always have this money in terms of the safety net. Um, and it might also mean that for someone who's buying a property now in this market, taking the advantage of the supply demand imbalance that we are really seeing, which is probably in my opinion, on the best time again, the way it is all, you know, with the population rise and low construction um, numbers that we are seeing through, this is probably one of the best time and making sure that we are buying it right. We are really making sure that we have the enough uh, safety net. And then maybe it also might mean that really paying LMI, which is the short for lenders mortgage insurance, instead of paying 20% avoiding LMI, because lots of people psychologically think that, oh, I should really save 2%. It's probably most of them are right or wrong. I'm not too sure. But when it comes to personal finance, it really comes down to the risk of investing versus risk of not investing. And when they really hold too much, I mean, too little money in their pocket to to be to, in order to save that two percent of LMI, I would actually argue that LMI is not just the insurance for the lender; it's also serving as a very good insurer insurance policy for the for the borrower because it's really serving as an extra eight percent or so extra money in the kitty. So buying it well, maybe keeping a lot more money for themselves as, as for the safety net, even it means less upfront cost, maybe as a virtue of paying LMI. And also maybe if it's getting too close as a number, then maybe we should be thinking about lowering the budget um, at, at the upfront so that the upfront costs are low so that we can really increase our uh, safety net, if that makes sense. Absolutely. You make some very good points there. Uh... And, you know, I totally agree with you on the LMI front because, uh, you know, if you're uh, borrowing money for investment, then the LMI is actually tax deductible and a good accountant can write that off in, in between one and five years, depending on how they decide to trade it. So having that potentially extra 8% of equity that you can access uh, and, and then potentially using that additional funds, almost like a... Uh, a tax deductible uh, rainy day reserve so that you know if you've got an interest only loan uh, with extra capacity in it over and above what you physically need to purchase the property and that becomes your reserve then one it's tax deductible two it doesn't cost you anything if you're not using it but when an issue occurs whether interest rates are going up or you have a, a, a period of vacancy uh, that's unexpected and you don't have the physical savings or, or cash there to do it then that remaining uh, what we call the war chest, that uh, equity loan interest only that's got that additional capacity can be almost used like a credit card uh, in the context that, you know, if you're not spending it, no cost. If you do need it for certain periods, then you've got that to fall back on without putting yourself under financial stress. So you can't emphasise enough the, the real importance of creating that rainy day reserve, using the equity that you have that's sleeping in your existing properties to fund that so you're not having to put your hand in your pocket with actual cash and therefore removing that stress barrier in relation to that ongoing affordability piece. So some re really good points made there. Thank you, Rusty. Now, uh, just to sort of bring this to a head then, uh, any any final concluding thoughts on the on this subject, Rusty? 
Uh, sure. So I'll probably say two things here. Like, first of all, like lots of people are getting too much pressure for what, what they're already holding. But at the same time, there are lots of people out there who are really trying to take advantage of this imbalances in the market. Um, and then they're also conscious that there's so much pressure of holding the property, especially with the risk involved, just like what we have been talking about, interest rate rises, the tenancy risk, bad tenant and whatnot. And I would also argue, I would always argue that that certainly there are risks in investing in the property. There are always risks. Let's not be blind to them. Let's be aware of them. Let's be educated around them. What are the risks? Let's also understand what those risks are and how do we go about mitigating them. But then bigger than that, there's also risk of not investing. So let's go back to the, your, your why, why you really want to go and invest, make your money work harder and build wealth. And what if you can't really achieve that? So to me, that's a far bigger risk, which is very hard to handle. So to me, there are risk of investing and risk of not investing enough. So there has to be the right balance. And second point that relates to that is basically, there has to be a personalized strategy for each and every individual, like what, where they are in the financial world or financial journey, where they are today, where they want to end up and how much risk they can take as in terms of their appetite, in terms of their tolerance, as well as their willingness, as well as, you know, what they can do, what they are really holding and then come up with their own personalized strategy rather than just getting too bogged down with this something called analysis paralysis. Of course, I'm not really saying that we should certainly be analyzing every each and everything, but let's really understand from the context of risk of not investing as well. A really important point because as, as you and I know too well, those that rely on the old Australian dream exercise of just paying off the home loan and putting money into super are going to end up in penny-pinching poverty uh, when they get to the point where they decide they're going to stop work. Uh, so I, I think the risk of not investing is actually far greater than the the incidental affordability risk that we've been talking about. So I, I think you make a really good point. And, and it's really important for investors to build it all out on paper before they commit so they understand what the, the true growth and cash flow affordability pieces of a property are before they start, rather than buy the property and then try and work out how it's going to work. So uh, and I, I know that the work that you do with investors is well attuned to really uh, laying out that turf and and making provision and contingencies for all those things that we've spoken about so they're never actually putting themselves in a position where they're going to be in financial stress. So look, uh, again, Rusty, I want to thank you for these very timely insights. And it certainly reinforces the importance of investors focusing on affordable growth uh, and the, the real sense of utilising your suggestions to better manage the cash flow uh, while a, a property does grow in value to achieve their needs without impacting on their hard-earned salary savings or restricting their lifestyle. So if anyone listening wants to explore their personal options with you further, Rusty, what's the best way for them to do that? For anyone like who would like to talk about their own journey, where they are today, where they want to end up, like I'm more than happy to catch up with them on one-on-one. -on -one. Um, they can really jump on my website, which is getrare.com.au forward slash ready as an R-E-A-D-Y for them to book a time one-on-one -on -one with me um, because that link would actually expose my calendar link and they can happily, you know, without any obligation can choose to uh, have a one-on-one -on -one chat with me. So the link again is getrare.com.au forward slash ready. Perfect. We'll make sure we put that in the in the show notes so that they can book in to do a readiness call with you. And, and again, I'll reinforce that. It's getrare.com.au forward slash ready. 
So, uh, Rusty, thanks again. We'll, we'll, we'll make sure we've got all of that in the show notes. And I also suggest that anyone who's interested in taking their property investment to the next level needs to join you on one of your free and very informative upcoming uh, Financial Freedom Live Zoom workshops, which uh, anyone can register on for now. Uh, again, on getrare.com.au forward slash financial freedom. That's getrare.com.au forward slash financial freedom. So thanks again for joining us here on the Property Hub's Realty Talk Show, Rusty. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Successful property investment is a game of finance. Do you have the right team and the right game plan? Realty Talk is brought to you by Know How Property. More than mortgage brokers, Bushy Martin and his team of investment architects set you up with a sustainable strategy structured to lower your costs, tax, risk and stress while increasing your capacity for growth. KnowHow has helped over 1,900 homeowners and investors secure more than $800 million in property wealth. So get set to live more, work less and live your legacy. Want to know how to invest in your freedom? Visit knowhowproperty.com.au Subscribe now to Realty Talk. It's out every week. Well, that brings us to the end of this week's show. A big thanks to Jeremy, to Rasty and Bushy for a really great show. They're all great, aren't they? Hey, make sure you don't miss a single episode of Realty Talk or Bushy's Get Invested podcast. And they're delivered to you each and every week. You can do that by subscribing to The Property Hub now on your favourite podcast player or wherever you're listening to or watching this show. Thanks to our supporters and to our content partners to realty.com.au, BMT, Tax Depreciation, Know How Property Finance, Get Rare Property and Apiro Marketing. I'm Kevin Turner and on behalf of Bushy and the Property Hub team, we look forward to seeing you again next week.